0: 1 Kings chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 God's word says Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places however because the house had no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Well, Annie Dillard tells of the ill-fated Franklin expedition to the Arctic in 1845. She writes, that Odyssey was a turning point in Arctic exploration because of its well-publicized failure. The preparations made were more suitable for the Royal Navy Officers Club in England than for the frigid Arctic. The explorers made room on their ships for a large library, a hand organ, china place settings, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware instead of additional coal for the steam engines. Their ornate silver flatware was engraved with the officer's individual initials and family crest. Search parties found clumps of bodies of men who had set off to walk for help when their supplies ran out. One skeleton wore his fine blue cloth uniform, edged with silk braid in it, hardly a match for the bitter Arctic cold. Another apparently chose to carry with him the place settings of silver flatware. What must he have been thinking to take sterling silver tableware in search for help and food? One cannot imagine that any of these sailors' adventurers would have said as they neared death on the frozen landscape, I wish... I brought more silver place settings. Well, the nature of your task, of your expedition, determines what is needed. If you're in the Sahara, water is an essential necessity. If you're walking through a rainforest, not as much. What is a necessity for life? What do you really want or need? We're upon Christmas. If you could get anything for Christmas, what? Would you ask for? Would it be a certain toy, an electronic, maybe a tool, some clothing items? Maybe it would be more time with family and friends, your health, a job, or improved finances. Maybe it would be something intangible but still very real, such as restored relationships, salvation of a loved one, or world peace. We love to ponder questions, ask these things, but for Solomon, these were not hypothetical questions. Early in his reign, as we just read, God appeared to him and asked Solomon for whatever he wanted. In this story, we basically see three things. We read the first two. The first we see Solomon's request and then God's response. And then later we'll read an example in verses 16 through 28 of this wisdom that is revealed. But the chapter begins in an interesting way with several confusing, at least to me, statements about Solomon. It starts by saying, he married the queen, the princess of Egypt. Now, there doesn't seem to be anything explicitly wrong with this because the Israelites were told in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7 not to marry the people of the land. Well, Egypt was not in the land. Yet, there seems to be a little bit of a compromise because in Deuteronomy 17, in the commands to the king, it tells him not to let the people go back to Egypt, do not return to there to buy horses. Now, Solomon's not buying horses, but he is kind of getting near the cookie jar, you might say. As well, as you compare the various dates of his reign and his son Rehoboam, it appears that Rehoboam was already born and that he was already married to Naima the Ammonite. Here, he seems to be breaking the command of not getting many wives. As well, verse 2, there's a suggestion though not a declaration of problems, and that is that there's still these high places, and that the temple had not yet been built. Now Solomon just came to the throne, so he couldn't resolve this immediately, but it'll take him four years to start, and then it's going to take him seven years to build it, which will add up to about 11 years, whereas it'll take him 13 years to build his own house. A slight compromise in priorities, we might say, And yet, even though all that is said, notice what it says in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. You can read from Genesis to Malachi, and no other person is described as loving the Lord. Now, we're told to love the Lord. The psalmist will say he does love the Lord, and yet no other person is described in the Old Testament as someone who loved God. Not just emotional feelings, because it says he walked in the statutes of God, David's father. This is high praise for Solomon. So what should we make of this? Should we think of Solomon well, or should we think of him poorly? Well, if to admire someone they have to be perfect, you'll never admire anyone. Because no one except Jesus is perfect. I think to be the only person declared to love God in the Old Testament is giving us a sign. You should emulate Solomon and what he's doing right here. I think one man captures it well. He says, we're presented with a Solomon who does love God, who shares his father's David commitment to God. But yet, right at the very beginning of his reign, he also carries with him the seeds of his own destruction. And we probably are all the same. But Solomon here stands as a great example in many ways, and we see that by what happens next. He goes in chapter 4 and he worships at this town, Gibeon, and he offers a thousand sacrifices at the high place. Now that is not a negative comment. That's actually quite positive. The high places will be a temptation for Israel, but here the one in Gibeon was actually one showing loyalty to God. I say that because in 2 Chronicles 1, it tells us that David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, but the tabernacle of the Lord was in Gibeon. Solomon was going to the tabernacle to worship. And this is why they needed a central place of worship, because they had multiple places. And yet they were not there. And while there, while Solomon is worshiping, God appears to him in a dream and asks what he wants. Now, we went to pull, had a poll through our city. What do you think people would say? You can have anything. Genie in a bottle. You can have whatever you want. If we looked what people crave online or on shows and movies, it would be fast cars, extremely attractive and adoring people hanging all around you, money, extravagance in all of life, food, vacations, lifestyle. Maybe it's power, prestige, people hanging on your every word. Now, probably many are like, oh, those are materialistic desires. I wouldn't want that. But Sure, it would be nice to not have to worry about money. Sure, it would be nice to not have to worry about my health anymore. Maybe I'd ask for that. I'm not asking for Mr. Wonderful or Mrs. Wonderful. I just want Mr. or Mrs. What would you ask for? What would make life perfect? Notice Solomon's response in verse 6. He doesn't begin by going, oh, I've been waiting. He begins by praising God. He praises God for his steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is his hesed. It gets translated in various ways through other versions. It reveres, refers to God's loyalty to his promises. His being faithful to keep his covenant with his people. You know, our love for God, it, it varies between a flame in a flicker, but God's love is unwavering. He has steadfast, loyal love. Where we have divided hearts, God's hearts and actions are always true and loyal. And Solomon begins here because the promise of someone is only as good as their character, only as good as what they can provide. You can make many promises, but unless you can fulfill them, it won't matter. And David reminds, Solomon excuse me, reminds himself that God always is loyal to his promises, as he was to David in putting his child on the throne. And so Solomon then in verse 7 talks about how, look, what I need is I need wisdom because I'm like a little child. I, I don't even know how to go out or come in. Now this is just an expression. He's basically saying, look, in comparison to you, God, I'm like a child. He's not demeaning himself. He's not saying I'm worthless. He's rather recognizing that in light of the task before him, he is not adequate. You know, humility is not denying the good skills you have. Humility recognizes I have these skills, and yet it was God who gave them to me, and it is God who needs to keep giving them to me. And yet they in and of themselves are not enough without God. Now, sadly, in Christian circles, a partial truth often gets floated around. A friend, a loved one is hurting, they're going through trying times, and a well meaning Christian says, Well, God will never give you anything that is more than you can handle. Well, that is not true. It's not a full truth. The truth is, God will never give you more than you can handle with his strength. You need to put that on the end, it is essential. He will, in fact, give you more than you can handle on purpose so that you will rely on his strength. He wants us to see through the mirage of self-sufficiency. Oh, I can do this on my own to see that only by him can we handle this life. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is describing his ministry, and he writes about it. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. He then will go on later in that letter to talk about a thorn in his flesh that he prayed to God three times, would you remove this from me? And yet God told him no three times, and then he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So yes, we can boldly say that God will never give you more than you can handle with his strength, with his empowerment, but never on our own strength or reliance. So upon whom are you relying for strength, for wisdom, for the resources to live? As you think about your finances, is the wisdom for your decisions only through a stockbroker or an investment baker or your own ability to read the market? As you think about your morality, is it the course of history, popular opinions, or friends who determine what is right or wrong? Well, the, all those things could be helpful if they are built upon God's word. So do you come to God in prayer calling out saying, give me wisdom no matter the task before you so that you might live in the way he calls us to live. Now, please don't confuse false humility with true humility. Berating yourself and saying you can do nothing is not the point. The point is recognizing that God gives you gifts and you need his continued enablement. And so you can give thanks. You've blessed me with whatever skill or talent, and will you continue to allow me to use that for your glory? Verse 8, Solomon goes on, because not only does he lack wisdom, but the task before him is great because the people are innumerable. Now Solomon here is reminding himself of God's faithfulness. The language of a people that can't be numbered is tying to the promise that God made to Abraham that one day your people will be like the sand of the seashore that cannot be counted. Solomon here is doing what we always do, and that is reminding himself of what the person has done in the past so they can have confidence today. It's what people do when the other person goes, I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. It's 4 o'clock, and it's not yet time for dinner. And so, so what does Sarah say? Jeremy, we've been married 15 years. Have I ever let you starve? No. Don't you think I'm going to make you dinner again? Yes. So do you think I'm going to stop today? No. So then I cheer up and I make it till 6 o'clock. It's the confidence of what they've done in the past that gives us hope for today. Solomon is looking back. You've kept these promises not just to David and the last generation. We can go back a 1,000 years. You've kept your promises. So I know you're going to do this rehearsing the faithfulness of the past gives us resolve for the present, is what he's saying. So what does Solomon pray for? Verse 9, he asked that he would give, that God would give him a heart, a mind, to give good and just judgments. In other words, that he would give him wisdom. You know, they didn't have the separation of powers like we do in the United States. Here, Solomon is obviously not lawgiver. That came through the Mosaic law. But he is both judge and and executioner. He has to do this role, and he realizes, I can't do it. I need your wisdom, God, to do this. But notice something important in verse 9. Notice it's not just what Solomon asked for, but why he asked for it. Notice it says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. He asked for this, Not so that he might be known as the world's foremost scholar in judicial opinions. So that when times are needed, everyone can come flooding to him because he is someone who's worthy of respect. He wants this to serve. He wants this to be a blessing to others. Solomon here is a picture of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So why Are you serving for yourself or others? And so Solomon's request surprises us. Wow, he didn't ask for all these things that we might have asked for. And yet what is God going to say? Well, we see that in verses 10 through 15. We see it in verse 10. It says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Well, it pleased the Lord because asking for wisdom is basically saying, I want my life focused on you, God. I say that because as we read earlier at the beginning of the service, Proverbs 2, 6 and 7. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So in essence, Solomon is saying, help me focus on you, God. That will give me wisdom. Not only will it give him wisdom, but it will give him a blessed life. Proverbs three thirteen says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Proverbs 8.11 declares, For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire, that's quite a phrase, all that you may desire, cannot compare with her, with wisdom. And It's not just the content as we noted, it's the reason that Solomon here is wanting this blessing so that he can serve. You know, every time God gifts us, it's not just for our own enjoyment. It's so that we might then be a blessing to others. But notice the importance of the statement of verse 10. Solomon pleased God. Wait, wait, wait. The Solomon who we noted earlier was borderline compromising in some ways? Yes. You know, no spouse would honestly say that everything their spouse does pleases them. No child would say their parents always please them. No employer would say their employees always please them. Yet in each case, there can be real pleasure from imperfect people. Now that may make you nervous of what I just said, because didn't Jesus say we must be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect? And he did. Didn't Paul say no one's good, no, not one? Yes, he did. Didn't Isaiah say our righteousness is as filthy rags? Yes, he did. And all of that is true, except sometimes we take something that's true and we apply it to the wrong context. That's why we need wisdom to apply not just the truth, but apply the truth at the right time. Let me get slightly technical theologically for a moment and then apply this. When the Bible talks about our salvation, it uses many terms, but three big ones are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And that's talking about three different times of our salvation in regards to three different aspects of sin. First, in Christ we were, past tense, saved. This is the idea of justification. It's a judicial act in which God declares someone who trusts in Christ to be perfectly righteous and had all their sin removed. In other words, we're delivered or saved from the penalty of sin. Second, in Christ we are being Present tense, saved. This is sanctification where God by his Holy Spirit works in us so that day by day we're delivered from sin. We're renewed in his image and we're enabled to do good works. In other words, I am delivered or I am saved from the power of sin in this life. Third, in Christ we will be. Future, so we talked about past, present, future. We will be. Saved. This is glorification. When we are taken to God and our bodies and souls are made perfect, so that we'll be delivered and saved from the presence of sin. So justification is past from the penalty of sin, sanctification is present from the power of sin, and glorification is future from the presence of sin. And the problem is what we do, if you're still with me, is we take justification the fact that we're declared righteous, and that it's nothing we can do, and we apply those truths to our sanctification. We want to rightly point out there's nothing you can do that pleases God in order to be saved. and That is 100% true, and yet we make an error if we then don't remind ourselves of the reality of sanctification, that we imply wrongly that though you're saved, you still can't please God. And then we abuse God's work. We don't honor him for what he does because the spirit does empower us to do good works. So if I lost you, let me bring it all to a simple statement. Why you can't please God to be saved, once you are saved, you can please him. Consider Hebrews eleven six: Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Implication, with faith, it is possible to please God. Romans 8.8 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But once we're not in the flesh, once we are in the spirit, we can. And that's not possible like, you know, it's possible to flip a coin a hundred times and get ahead every time. Well, yes, that's possible. But it's not probable. It is probable. It is actually, should occur in your life that you please God if you're saved. Consider Philippians 4.18. Paul's writing says, I have received full payment more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 9 and 10, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what we're talking about here in 1 Kings 3. Paul's praying that they would have spiritual wisdom, they'd have understanding. Well, why? He goes on. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. If you know God and you live as He calls you to, you bring pleasure to God. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And we could give many more verses. Now this is really important because in our desire to keep justification by faith alone, nothing we do, I think we undercut people's motivation to do good. How is that? Well, what do you do if you have someone who you keep trying to please and you can never do it? You try, you do your best, and what do they say afterwards? Well, you made this mistake. They're always pointing out the wrong thing you do. They're always saying, well, you didn't do it good enough. And sadly, some of you have had parents like that. You may have bosses like that. And what do you finally do? I quit, I'm done. No one can please you, and so you stop trying. And yet God shows us by his spirit, by faith, we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not just because of what Christ did, though that's true, it's because he empowers us so that we might now live lives that please him. And so here we see that since this pleased God, verse 11, God is going to give him this request. He's going to give him other good things. And since he didn't ask for long life or riches or the death of his enemies, but instead to have wisdom, God's going to give him that request. As well, he's going to give him the riches and glory he did not ask for. Now here is a good reminder that we don't become super spiritual. Well, yes, this Christmas I'm not asking for any gifts because I only want wisdom from God. Would you give me a thicker Bible and more commentaries? You know, the, God blesses, he doesn't curse Solomon by giving him riches and honor. It's not bad to ask for physical things. The question is, what, is not what is the good and the bad gift. The question is what is the good and the better gift. We're talking about comparison of good things, not evil versus justice or right versus wrong so here we must realize it's not wrong to desire these things but are they the greatest thing in our life and so solomon is blessed by god and then he awakes and he goes and he offers more sacrifices and he gives gifts to his servants you know that's reminding us that god delights to give good things to his children james 4 captures the reason God doesn't often give us what we want, though. It says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, God wants to bless you. He wants to give you good things, except he loves you too much to give you things that are going to take away your love for him, that will lead you into idolatry. And so we have seen here that Solomon doesn't want that. He wants to serve God. He has a life that is focused on pleasing God and serving others. And so now the story goes from telling of God's blessing of wisdom to seeing that wisdom revealed. We see this in verses 16 through 28. And I'll read beginning in verse 16. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. and We were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we, two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked closely... In the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, no, the living child is mine, and the dead is yours. The first said, No, the dead is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, "The well, one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because my heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours to fight him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And so here we have this story, a well-known Bible story, in which these two women, these two prostitutes, both become pregnant, and they both have a son within three days. Yet, tragically, in the night, one of them smothers their child. And yet, that mother switches the baby, as the other mom, probably so exhausted, didn't wake up, and when the other mother wakes up, she finds that a child, though she soon discovers not her own child, is dead. And so they come to Solomon, there they're going back and forth. And the situation is extremely challenging for several reasons. First, the children is so, are so young that you can't point out family resemblance. They're not old enough to have developed such things. Second, there's no other witnesses to the birth or to the death. Third, it happened to the night. So both can claim this happened. Fourth, the death happened in such a way that either could have done it. So Solomon's in quite a legal predicament as to what to decide, since both say, my son lives and her son died. So you have to give the living child to someone, but which one? Well, Solomon then declares that the way forward is to have a sword and cut the child in half. Now we need to pause here, because some people really misunderstand The story at this point, Solomon, as will be borne out, was not actually saying, we're going to cut the child in half. Solomon's wisdom recognized something about the situation, something that would, in fact, prevent prevent the child from being cut in two. What he needed was a way to show what that something was. And the proposition of cutting the child in two brings that to the surface. We see this immediately because the woman whose son lived, out of her compassion for her son, says, no, do anything but kill it. You can give the child to the other woman. And the other woman, in her spite, is fine to have the child cut in two. What's going on is that Solomon's wise perception brought to light what he already knew, and that is only the true mother would care enough to give it up. And thus he declares that this child go to the correct mother and then by this report solomon's fame and the fear of the people of him grows so that they see that the wisdom of god was upon him for justice and solomon's handling this authenticated that only god could have given him such wisdom and the author makes clear that what solomon asked for was actually given solomon asked for justice to be able to rule justly. And three times in verse 28 in the Hebrew, it uses that word showing that Solomon didn't just have any dream that he conjured up. God himself spoke, and God gave him this wisdom. Well, this wisdom is not just something Solomon could have. James 1 tells us that anyone who lacks wisdom should ask God who gives generously to all. Having this wisdom is similar to having our daily bread we pray to god for our daily bread and we know that god answers that prayer normally through the means of us working so we don't pray for our daily bread and sit and wait wonder how it's going to appear today it's going to fly through the window miraculously appear on my plate what's going to happen i'm just waiting in the same way if we pray to god for wisdom how are we going to get it we work We know that he works through means, as we read earlier in the beginning of the service from Proverbs 2. Solomon used these words, treasure it up, make your ear attentive, incline your heart, call out, raise your voice, seek it like silver or search for it as hidden treasure. If I told you all that the dumpster behind the church has $1,000 in it that got thrown away, some of you would be dumpster diving before I could be done with this sentence. You want that money. You would search for it like hidden treasure. You would go through anything because you want that money. Solomon's saying you should want wisdom more than you dumpster dive for $1,000 in cash. You should be willing to do anything to know wisdom. And yet we need to be clear. When the Bible talks about wisdom, it's not talking about some abstract philosophical search. You know, true wisdom is not in emptying your thoughts nor is it in having a litany of degrees after your name. True wisdom is not found in journeys to far-off mountains, nor is it found in the halls of academia. Wisdom is found in the source of all wisdom, Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, tells of Christ, and he says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so if you want to search for wisdom, Search to know and be known by Jesus Christ. And there's no better search because you can hunt for many things and not get it. Everyone who seeks for Christ can be found by him. And this yes, is not just a one-time experience. Oh, yep, I checked that. I'm saved. I know Christ. Paul, who was an apostle, said, I want to know him. He wanted to daily grow in his love and knowledge of who jesus was every day to be growing in his appreciation for god because god himself is good to know him is to know joy well sometimes the reality of life is pressed upon us the urgency of the situations before us remove all the clutter and distractions of life and bring into focus what is truly essential the 1845 Franklin Expedition through the Arctic that we mentioned earlier didn't realize this, but Ernest Shackleton did. In 1914, he captained a crew on the Endurance with other ships to sail down to Antarctica and to reach the South Pole. They set off with high hopes, eager enthusiasm, enthusiasm, and even Queen Alexandria gave them gifts. Well, things began very well. They looked like they were going to make it, and then their ships got trapped in ice and the ice kept growing and getting tighter together until their ships were pinned and crushed and so they abandoned the ships and they took everything off they needed even a few lifeboats and yet Shackleton realized you can't live on a icy wasteland forever you need to get off and so he began to plan a trip so that they might live and he called the men together and Speaking with utmost conviction, Shackleton pointed out that no article was of any value when weighed against their ultimate survival, and he exhorted them to be ruthless in ridding themselves of every unnecessary ounce, regardless of its value. After he spoke, he drew out a gold cigarette case and gold sovereigns, and he threw them into the snow. Then he took out the Bible that Queen Alexandria had given him, And he ripped out the fly leaf. He ripped out the 23rd Psalm. And he ripped out Job 38, 29 through 30, which says, From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Shackleton realized that what mattered most was not gold or gifts. He threw them at his feet in the snow. But it was, the one, it was to know the one who controlled all, the ice and the snow. And didn't just control all, but who cared for him as his shepherd. Now notice, it wasn't that when he began the trip, he said, well, I can't take anything nice on a journey. It's only the essentials. He had gold he could throw in the snow. And yet he realized in comparison between good, better, and best, what's best is living and knowing the living God. So he needs the things to live, and he needs God's Word. And so he hangs on to it. He could differentiate between what is essential and what makes life more enjoyable. So what is it that is essential to you? What is it that will give you the greatest thing on earth? Jesus says, I am the life. I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. And so would you seek him and know true wisdom, true joy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, give us such wisdom. Lord, as we go through life, there are many decisions and choices, and the clutter of life often squeezes out what is best. Lord, may we see and cherish what truly matters. May we see you in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.